0: I've always loved the game. Not that I'm the greatest player, but I have a good arm and a decent glove. It's something that my father and I used to do together. We'd play catch in the backyard and pitch to one another. (laughs) Good memories. I always expected to pass this tradition, this love to my own sons. Leaving a legacy, passing things along to the next generation, It's never as easy as we'd like it to be. And I'll be honest, I have regrets. I should have been concentrating my efforts on teaching them to hear the voice of God. I should have been passing along that tradition, that love. Maybe I was too busy. Maybe I wasn't given a good enough example to follow. Maybe I could come up with thousands of excuses. But when it comes down to it, I dropped the ball.
1: Good morning, everyone. It's great to have you here today, as Laurie has already mentioned. Our guests, my name is Wayne Kent, and I'm very glad you're here. I'm part of the pastoral team, and we're going to spend some time looking at Scripture together today. I'd invite you to take your Bible, please, and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. It's about that far through the Bible. Maybe you have a Bible on your smartphone or brought yours with you. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, there's one on the pew rack in front of you. We would be really honored if you would um, take that home as our gift to you, all right? I just want to, as we step into this too, I also want to acknowledge that it's good to be back home today. We, Les and I were out of town last weekend, so you may be aware of that, that we went to visit my family, uh, who uh, my immediate family all live in British Columbia. We went up there. For uh, a variety of reasons, including uh, my father's 80th birthday celebration. We had some 35, 40 friends of his, lifelong friends of his, since we moved to Canada in 1969 from Australia. Um, they all came up to my sister's house. I have two siblings. I have an, a younger brother. I'm the oldest. Can't you tell? Can't, the smartest, I'm sure is what it is. No, they wouldn't agree, but nonetheless, I'm the oldest. I have a, a, a brother who's four and a half years younger than I am and a sister who's six and a half years younger than I am. And so I've always been that four and a half, six and a half year difference. Um, well, it, it showed, like here's a picture from, that, from the event. Actually, that's not the event. That's when I was about 15 and I was starting to be a young man. They were still kids. That, that was just after I hit my stride when it came to my sense of high fashion, <laughs> which has never left me, as you can tell. There you go, okay. <laughs> Actually, here's a photo of the of the v- event itself, really. Uh, that's the family gathered together. We, the, the initial plan was to have my mother and sitter, sister sit on the chairs, and the men were going to stand behind. But then we realized that uh, she was wearing the same fabric as the chairs. It probably wasn't going to work out so well. <laughs> Oh, I'm going to hear about this. I wonder if she's going to watch this on, on the internet. <laughs> anyway, so we had a lovely time. It was a little bit complicated to get all the family because we have family that live in Alberta. We live in Illinois and uh, people throughout British Columbia. And uh, complicated to get everybody there and, and um, all the food and make sure we were taking care of all the people who were going to show up and everything. And um, we, had, we had an Australian afternoon tea. It was lovely. Lovely, lovely Australian food like pavlova. Do you know what a pavlova is? Pavlova is this white meringue that's... About, we all made at the house. We made it all. It's um, this white meringue. Primarily sugar and egg whites for the most part, all right? And then it's covered with whipping cream and none of that stuff out of a can. I'm talking about real whipping cream and, and cut fruit on t- like strawberries on top of that. Oh. And mom made a really big... Big one like this, and then we had um, we had jelly cakes. Do you know what jelly cakes are? You don't because you're not from Australia, so you don't know. So I'll tell you because it's coming up on lunch, and I just want you to feel the juices run. (laughs) We had uh, jelly cakes are um, uh, cupcakes that are rolled in what Australians call jelly, but we would here in the U.S. would call Jello, just as it's about to congeal. Usually in raspberry or strawberry jelly, you, you, you roll it, and then you roll it in coconut. And so it's red and white, and then you cut the top and slice it, and you fill it full of, of um, whipping cream again, and it goes in. I'm talking Australian, just talking about it. Can you hear it coming out? Okay. Vanilla slices. We had vanilla slices. So sweet stuff. And then lamb sams. Lamb sams are lamb sandwiches, okay, so it's white bread, it has to be white, it can't be, can't be none of that healthy stuff, white bread with butter, butter, not butter, but butter, no mayonnaise, butter, and then roast lamb and tomato sauce, otherwise known in our country as ketchup. Oh, sweet stuff. We had these little Australian things that we flags on um, toothpicks that we stuck in it all, and it was lovely stuff. And um, I'm up for lunch now. After all of that, I tell you, it was it was um, it was wonderful to be there and to celebrate my dad's life. And you know, although we weren't able to be there for Father's Day, it was good to be there. I, I know Father's Day for a lot of us. If you talk about complications, uh, Father's Day is a little bit complicated, isn't it? Because um, I mean, that video that we showed just a minute or two ago, you've got this sense for some people in the room that, man, Dad was fully engaged all the time. Maybe not playing ball, but back and forth of life every day. But for others, when you get to Father's Day or Mother's Day, here at First Christian, we're always very sensitive to that for some people, this day is not necessarily a day of celebration. For some, it's a day of mourning. Their dad has recently died. And for others, it's a day of regrets. And so we wanna be careful how we maneuver our way through all of that very complicated emotional baggage that comes with all of that. Talking about complicated, I want you to see a photo we took recently of a gathering we had here. 15 families dedicated, 16 children. That's complicated to get that photo to work. Can you congratulate those families for all those babies? So I'm I'm I feel like I'm stepping into a little bit of a, a what could be a powder keg today with when it comes to Father's Day this complicated business of Father's Day and babies and families and mums and dads and parenting and siblings and families children the Australian food and all that sort of stuff it's it's appropriate since we're in the middle of a series right now this month reviewing the life of a very very complicated individual from Scripture he was a dad. He lived more than a 1,000 years before Jesus was born. Perhaps you know some of the story of Samuel. Samuel's mother was a woman by the name of Hannah. She was unable to bear children, and she promised God, if you'll let me have a son, please, God, let me have a son. I I want a baby, God, if I can have a son. I promise you he'll be raised to know you. And as a matter of fact, young Samuel came along quite unexpectedly. And when he was a little boy, maybe four or five years of age, somewhere around there, perhaps even younger, we're not real certain, She took him to the house of God and she introduced him to the priest there and she said, Eli, this is my son who I prayed for and I want you to raise him in the house of God and I will come and visit. But he is my son and I want you to raise him to know God. Eli was Israel's primary priest. He had two sons who um, were in a general, it would be kind of like Eli was the grandfather figure, if you will, primary um, spiritual leader in Israel. Um, you got Samuel, this little boy, and in between that are adult men, two sons of Eli, who had taken... The plan was that they were going to take over the family role of priestly duties in the nation. But they were not good guys. If you wanted to do something in the house of God, you'd have to bribe them to do it. And there was ways you could do that with money and with meat, and if you're a woman, with sexual favors. And so consequently, these two young men were unsuitable to lead the nation. And so the leadership went from Eli, it skipped the two guys, Hophni and Phinehas, and passed to young Samuel, who took over their role. And where we step into the story today, a number of years have passed by. As a matter of fact, another 50, 60 years, and Eli and his sons are dead, and Samuel is now the lead voice for, the, ...for spirituality in the nation of Israel. I invite you to read along with me. 1 Samuel chapter 8, beginning verse 1. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of the firstborn was Joel. The name of his second was Abijah. And they served at Beersheba. So they are now doing... So if you can think about it this way. You had Eli, leading priest... His two sons lost that role. It's now passed to Samuel. Samuel's got two sons, Joel and Abijah. They are taking on, beginning to take on Samuel's responsibilities. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So if I could give you a picture of what's going on here. From Samuel's point of view, life is going extremely well. He's coming to the end of his life and it's going to be like, okay, I'm going to pass everything off to the kids. But in the midst of the wellness of his life, it's going to get big, bad, and ugly very quickly. Uh, we've seen some examples of that in recent days. When I mean, we got the situation in Orlando or last Sunday morning, we saw—I mean, talk about talk about life going really well and then turning ugly and horrible. That horrific event visited upon that family visiting Disney World this past week, right? I mean, that—that that little baby—and you just go, "Oh, how horrible." Well, as I was prepping for this sermon, I also, a few weeks ago, I came across a video that describes this business of how life could be going really well and turn ugly um, on another video coming out of Florida. And uh, perhaps, just, just watch the video about how these guys are out having a lovely day golfing. And this is real footage. Golfing in Florida, this alligator shows up. Now, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't be golfing there. Now, here was interesting, in the audio, which I'm not, we didn't play for you today, they, they, the, the guy who's filming says, hey, get closer, and he says to another guy, and he's going to appear in a white shirt here. Uh, see, there he is. I'm going, are you an idiot? Okay, so the thing is lumbering. It's about 15, 18 feet long, and, and he's getting as close as he can. They can run. They can run. and And so... As, as media have talked to the golf course, the golf course people say, yeah, we know about this alligator. We see it from time to time. say, move the golf course. <laughs> Do something. Because Do, that's, that's all is going well. And now life's going to get very difficult. I think it's really what Samuel had experienced. All is well. He's on the 18th. He's, he's teeing off on the 18th hole of his life. And he's saying, I got one more thing. And he's about to... You know, all is well except, oh, I got these sons. I'm serving God. The nation recognizes me as, your, as their leader. But the sons, ironically, they're following the same sort of story that Eli's sons had followed. Read with me. Where, and we're going to read in verse, uh, verse 4. Where life had started well for Samuel, but now it's ending badly as the younger generation has moved into power and authority. And it's going to be really... They just did, the, the nation didn't like his, their kids' response, so beginning in verse 4, we read this. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old, and your sons don't follow your ways. You're on the 18th tee, and you need to know it's not all as well as you think. So in light of that, appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all the people are saying to you, it's not you they've rejected, but they've rejected me as their king. As they've done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. So listen to them. In other words, do what they want, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. In other words, there are some consequences to the requests. And it's almost like God is saying, okay, you want a king? Are you sure? And what's going to go, God's going to say, well, a king's going to demand allegiance from you that's going to make your life more difficult. And, you, and, and Israel, you're going to start answering to the king before you answer to me. And you're going to lose some personal freedoms. And the personal freedoms come that they lose come in the form of taxes and vocations and we have to be in the military. And read with me beginning at verse 10. Samuel taught all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king. And he said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He'll take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they'll run in front of his chariots. You're gonna be, they're gonna be, there's going to be a military draft. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He'll take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers, He'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves. In other words, he's going to tax you and give them to his attendants because he's going to have a retinue. He's going to have staff that he's going to, have to take care of. He'll take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and the donkeys he'll take for his own use. He'll take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. And when that day comes, you'll cry out for relief from the king you've chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. What they do? The people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. And the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. So Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone go back to your own town. And so what's going to happen is Israel's going to get a king. And we're going to look at that again next, next week and dig into that with some detail. But for today, some observations, particularly about chapter 8 here. Um, I, I, let me start by saying this. You can see that the poor choice the nation is about to make, I'm certain. Israel is choosing to lose some of their freedom for the sake of not taking on personal responsibility. They, they said... Samuel, if your boys were really the kind of men they'd want, we want them to be, everything would be okay. But your boys can't be trusted. And since we certainly can't trust ourselves or don't want to take responsibility for our own lives, then put somebody else in charge. And we, we don't care if we have to pay more taxes, we don't care if there's a military draft, as long as we're not the ones responsible. Are there any parallels to our present national setting? Make someone else in charge. You know, I rarely make political comments uh, during worship services. I save that for direct line heard each and every Wednesday evening from 5 to 7 p.m. on News Talk 1340 WSOY. Or, no, it's going to be heard on News Talk 1340 WSOY. There you go. How's that supposed to go, okay? And if you're new to First Christian Church, uh, we have a radio show that's heard on WSOY each Wednesday evening at 5 o'clock. And um, by the way, guys, you know, we thought when we tried that, if we lasted for six weeks, we'd be doing all right. We're now coming up on 11 years, and we continue to be the number one listened to show for the whole community for afternoon programming. Isn't that great news? It's good stuff. Well, thank you. And our, our goal is to speak to the topics of the day with a Christian lens. And, and, and humor—we use a lot of humor in the show, and it, it, it seems to be working very well. It's got a wide listenership. We know that we have five thousand people listening at any one time at that, so it's great news. But I would normally save my comments regarding national affairs more so for the radio show. But I thought today, given the fact of how First Semulate is really all about politics and about governing, and w- w- would you? Would you bear with me for a moment? Because I think it bears um, some responses from us. Namely, here's what is it's quite clear. That when a nation's mood moves to where people expect the government to be responsible for what individuals should do, then there's trouble coming. Absolutely. A national government should and must provide for the nation's security, military strength, and well-being. That's appropriate. Certainly what the founding fathers of our nation expected. But the present ethos within our country that states we want the government to provide for this and that, that's a disaster waiting to occur. And Samuel warned the people of Israel, if you will not take responsibility for yourself, if you choose to have somebody else make decisions for you, then there's a cost to your unwillingness to be an adult and make adult decisions. Now, there are situations in the, life of our nation, in the life of our nation right now where the church should have stepped up, and we didn't. And there are other settings within the nation where individuals should be responsible for their own, if you will, welfare and future. And sadly, in both cases, the church and individuals haven't acted like we should, and consequently, the nation is going, we want a king. We want somebody to be in charge of this. We want somebody to take care of this for us. What are you doing for me? We'd never say here in the U.S., oh, we want a king, would we, or a, a republic. We, we have a democratic understanding that everybody votes. Yeah, but if you notice what people are voting for these days? We want somebody to do it for us. Isn't that what the people of Israel were saying? No, we don't really say that, Wayne. Well, think about this. We say, give us the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, because we're certainly not going to care for the earth correctly without government regulation. Give us mandated health care, because the church certainly isn't going to provide for the sick, like it's called to. Give us a welfare culture, because the rest of us who do have means, we certainly don't want to abide by Jesus' instructions to love our neighbors as ourselves and be people of complete and cheerful and great generosity. We want somebody else to do it. Give us rules and regulations and laws and a tax code that goes beyond what any one person can know because left to our own individual devices, we'd run amok. Somebody else needs to be in charge. And the people of Israel said, Samuel, we don't like your boys, but by golly, don't put us in charge. We want somebody that we can blame. Put somebody else in charge. And so they wanted a king. They wanted somebody who could be blamed for their own lack of maturity, for their unwillingness to make adult decisions. That's the first reason they wanted a king. But there's a second reason they wanted a king as well. Peer pressure. Straight up peer pressure. You see it in verse 19. They said, we want a king over us, then we'll be like all the other nations with a king to lead us. Am I, are you kidding me? The reason they want a king is so that they'll look like other nations? You know, peer pressure sometimes can be a good thing. When it calls you maybe to some good behavior, you know, like you get a group of people together and say, we're going to hold each other accountable to do this, that, or the other and to to make our lives better. But in this case, it was not a good idea at all. There's a lot of peer pressure on ministries over the last few days for us to make... um, comments, if you will, regarding the situation that occurred in Orlando last Sunday morning. And uh, trust me, there's this sense, if you talk to those of us in those ministry settings, there's this pressure that we have to make pronouncements about this matter or that matter, about homosexuality or Islam or gun control and so on, in light of what happened in Orlando last Sunday morning. And so I want to. Uh, that makes me want to push, pull back altogether, and say, just because other people are saying stuff, I'm not going to step into that peer pressure. But I would, I would like to say this, because regarding the shooting in Orlando, this is what we need to say: I'm sorry for the deaths of people made in the image of God. Straight up, that's what we can say about Orlando. I'm sorry for the state of the world that has brought this about, and tears have flowed throughout the nation and across the nation this past week, and legitimately so. But some people are choosing to make what happened in Orlando this past week a matter of right-wing versus left-wing. And there's this peer pressure upon ministries to make decisions about that or to make decisions and pronouncements regarding conservative versus liberal matters regarding the shooting in Orlando or whether or not there's a Republicans or the Democrats are going to make different statements or whether it's an establishment versus progressive. What are the gay people versus the straight people saying? What about male versus p- female or gun rights? gun prohibitions versus the NRA, the religious versus the atheists, the Christians versus the Muslims, the Western ideals versus an Eastern mindset, skin color, civil rights. And you could go, there's all these extremes and all these topics that have come out as a result of that Orlando shooting. And my position and our church's position on lots of those various topics is known. But I tell you this, I find it quite offensive, very offensive, that some are taking the deaths of people and using them for political purposes, and it happened within hours of those events, that event occurring last Sunday morning. You should not start the discussion on any of those matters I just listed by framing within the discussion within the context of a tragedy and the crime. Here's how Christ's followers should respond to the Orlando Massacre. We weep because people made in God's image died. They died needlessly, and that's reason enough to weep without getting into all the other stuff that goes with it. You know, churches are sometimes expected to make these polarizing statements about these matters, and let me say this, that we as a congregation will not make or take positions on polarizing matters apart from this. We will declare what scripture states and we will live there even when it's difficult and even when culture and relig- cultural and religious peer pressure wants us to take a differing approach. We are not striving to look like others, ever. We will be the church God calls us to be with this is the bedrock of who we are. Scriptural authority is the bedrock of our ethos. Scriptural authority is the bedrock of our culture as culture a congregation. And scriptural authority is the bedrock of what we do in terms of our polity. Because what happened here in 1 Samuel chapter 8 is the people of Israel took to a bad form bad form as a nation. They succumbed to peer pressure. And other nations had a king, and they wanted to look like others. And if you know the history of Israel from this point moving forward, oh, still it was going on the upward at this point. They've got another two generations yet to go, but they got to go through Saul and David. But from that point on, it's downhill. And the reason they're going up is because they've had good things. But the seeds for the downhill were put in play in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Samuel said, Don't look to other things. If you look to a king, if you look to other things before godly counsel, then apart from leaving God, your taxes are going to go sky high and you're going to lose your freedoms and your resources. Any responses to what we would have as Americans today? I'll leave you to discuss that over lunch. Seriously. Because I think a better way for me to respond to it is, what should we do? How should the people of First Christian Church be different than that? What should we do? Well, obviously, the situation is such here in 1 Samuel 8. It would have been significantly different if Samuel's sons had followed the heart of God. And so in that light, we need to be people who are certain that we teach the next generation to follow God with righteous justice. If Samuel's kids had lived differently, the nation of Israel would look different today, some 3,000 years later. Let's do all we can to teach the coming generation after us to live lives with righteous godly counsel in them and God's leadership in their lives personally. But I know that some of you would say, Well, Wayne, I get that, but if you knew my kids... I, I tried, Wayne. I really, really tried. I tried with my kids. I I tried with my grandkids. I tried with my nieces and nephews. And here's the truth, Wayne. They are so far from God. And I worry about them. Uh, They don't know a thing about walking with Jesus now. They've they've forsaken all that. And I'm I'm worried about the generation they're going to introduce to the world. What do we say about family members who have gone off the rails? Because doesn't every family have that? Every family that's in church today You have members of your family, and you go, I got that family member who's just not walking with Jesus today. And it's this constant thing right here, right? You're quite aware of it all the time. May I remind you of some things of what we know as Christians in response to that? God gives each of us the right to choose to walk with him or not to walk with him. And if you're walking with Jesus Christ today, then the ability that you have to choose to walk with Christ, that ability is the same capability that some have used to walk away from Christ going the other way. You're going this way. They've taken their ability to choose to walk that way. But may I remind you, the ability to choose is good because that means they are humans. Thus, they are made in God's image. They are not robots. And the ability that they have to turn to say no has also the capability to turn and say yes. If it was just that they are forever condemned, that's scary. But the fact that they have, set, have been able to say no and you've said yes indicates that there's a point where they can say yes as well. And to that end, remember the stories of those who return to Christ late in life. As an example for this today, I'd like to invite you to help your fellow people worshiping today, to remind us of some of the people who've, who've come to know Christ later in life. Let me ask you this. Are there people in the room here today that you know who would say, I really didn't begin my walk with Jesus till I was after 30? Anyone? Come on, put those hands up. I started my walk with Jesus after I was 30. Dozens of people. Okay, there's good news in that. We have people in the life of this church who started their walk with Christ after their 30th birthday, after their 45th, after their 60th birthday, after their 70th birthday. We baptized somebody recently in their 80s. How cool is that? How cool is that? Now, I know that if they wait to come to Christ that long, man, it gets very complicated and all crazy stuff, twists and turns and ups and downs. And you look at your kids and you go... Man, and you go, they are a slow train coming, but the train is coming down the rails, and if you can get your ear close enough to the rails, they are coming. You may not hear it yet, but here's what I'm convinced of. They are coming, and as your pastor, I want you to know, I placed my trust there for their future. We got kids that grew up in this church after being here for more than 20 years. I know lots of kids who grew up in this church here. You go, man, I look at them now in their mid to late 20s and I go,
0: hmm.
1: But that's just because it hasn't come home yet. It hasn't come home yet. And yet is the operative word for me. I'm still waiting. I'm still a person of faith because here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to continue to focus on extending grace and love. And sometimes that love is very complicated. It doesn't mean condoning unrighteous behavior. It might mean some tough love that shuts down communication from time to time. And it certainly means some tough love when it says, we're not giving you any money anymore to sponsor bad behavior. But I'll continue to love. And like the father of the prodigal son, I'm planning the party full of great grace for the day you do come home. For the day when it all makes sense, there is going to be a party for the day when Jesus becomes the reality, the, in reality, the leader of your life. Because here's what I know beyond the shadow of doubt, friends. I expect God to interrupt in the lives of the members of our family who are not yet walking with Christ in the way in which they should. We believe as Christians that God is engaged in the lives of people. There are pl- plenty of people I know who not, have not come to that reality yet. And their lives, as I look at them, oh, it is so complicated. And drama. Lots of drama. Anybody familiar with drama? And lo- lots of drama. And you go, oh, for crying out loud. And you know what I do in the middle of that? I say, oh, God, interrupt that setting because you are a God of interruptions. And to that end, I'd like to pray with you right now. Let's pray. Father, I pray for families in this room right now. We look at this situation for Samuel and we go, oh, if he'd only been able to move his kids to a different position, how would it be different, Lord? And we look at our own families, Lord. And we go, there are places where we go to these individuals and we go, what are they thinking? Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus that you'd bring in the name of Jesus Christ, that you'd bring clarity of thought and the conviction of your Holy Spirit. We're waiting, God, for our kids, for our grandkids, our nieces, our nephews, our siblings. We're waiting for them to literally see the light. We don't see it yet, but we're willing to wait on the word yet. We're willing to wait there. Speak to our hearts in that regard. And Lord, I pray that if there's someone here today who is that slow train coming, that you would woo them back into a relationship with you that is God-honoring and self-fulfilling through you. And we pray this in Christ's name.